We're going to be back in the Gospel of Luke this morning. We're going to pick up with the passage we started looking at last week. And I want to remind us just a little on the start of Luke. Every once in a while, you hear us reflect back on how Luke opens his gospel. And I was thinking about that opening this week, especially with regards to this passage, because there's differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke on what we're going to look at this morning. But here's what Luke says at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So let me open up with a word of prayer this morning to see the exact things that Luke is teaching. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Hopefully we're humble and teachable. We want to know your word and we want to know what you want us to know and do. And then we want to be enabled by your spirit to carry that out. So that's what we pray for this morning. Help us, help me this morning as we look at this passage and what you said to your disciples and the apostles just shortly before you go to the cross. We lift up our time this morning the name of our Savior, Jesus, for you and your glory. Amen. Let me read the passage we covered last week and do just a quick little, quick little review. Verses 5 through 19. <clears throat> and while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when, therefore, will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes. 
and in various places, plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed, be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet, not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance. You will gain your lives. So as a little bit of a review here, quickly, we see Jesus starting to answer their questions. And he starts by saying, there are going to be false messiahs. You're going to have social and civil turmoil. Wars, natural disasters. But even before that stuff happens, there's going to be persecution. But you're going to have an opportunity to witness. There's going to be rejection, and some of you may be put to death. But, and this was the key point, you will not perish if you endure. And we went through and we talked about those things last week. <clears throat> and now we're going to continue as we listen to Jesus responding to their questions. If you remember from last week, in Luke, we saw there were two questions that the disciples asked. And in Matthew, there were three questions. In both cases, the word sign was used. Sign is something that serves as a pointer to aid with uh, perception or insight. It's an object, a quality, or an event whose presence or occurrence indicates the probable presence or occurrence of something else. Sign is a perceptible indication of something which is not immediately apparent. And so it serves as a visible clue that something will happen. Now we're going to see Jesus give the disciples or the apostles signs that answer their question. There's going to be a near-term sign and a far-term sign. And we'll see in a minute why I feel that's an appropriate way to look at the passage. So let's look now at verses 20 through 28. That's what we're going to look at this morning. It's going to be in two pieces. It's going to be first a picture of the end, Jerusalem's destruction, in verses 20 through 24. And then it's going to be the end, the coming of the Son of Man, in verses 25 through 28. 
And there's going to be two main points based on those two ways that we can break up the passage. One, the destruction of Jerusalem is a picture of judgment for Israel's sin in the near term, but it also ensures that the next prediction for a far-term judgment is a judgment of sin which is even greater. It ensures that that's going to happen. And the second point is the second paragraph, and it's Jesus is coming back. And when he does, there's both judgment for the lost and redemption for the faithful. So let's read the passage and spend some time looking at how is Jesus going to answer their questions further. Verse 20, he goes on to say, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance. So that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Then he goes on to say, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations. In perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear in the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Something that I found helpful as I was trying to work through these passages First of all, at the top of your handout, if you don't have a handout, there's some in the back table. And I would recommend you grab one because I'm going to be referencing uh, on a table on the back of that handout that you might find useful. But something I, I came across with Daryl Bach and, and his commentary when he's talking about this section in Luke. And he, he, he helps me with this difference between prophetic remarks and apocalyptic elements. There is, a, there is a difference in the kind of language that's used in the realm of prophecy that, that, that the writers employ when they're trying to describe things. He said, while prophetic remarks dominate verses 7 through 24, 
apocalyptic elements appear in the second part of what we're going to look at today, verses 21, verses 25 to 28. What's the difference between these two? Prophetic promise frames itself in everyday history where God works through agents already present, while apocalyptic speaks explicitly of God's breaking into history in a marvelous way. Very interesting. So, if you were to take the passage, the whole passage, Luke 5 through 38, it's called the Olivet Discourse. We don't see that in Luke, but we see that in Matthew and Mark. It's on the Mount of Olives when Jesus is talking to the disciples about this. We see there's like four breakdowns. So the very first thing up there is the two questions and then the start of the answer, which we looked at last week. The second and the third box are what we're going to look at this morning. A prophetic piece, an apocalyptic piece as part of the answers. So let's start breaking that down. Let's start with verse 20. He says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, recognize her desolation is near. So he starts with the word but, which we know is a contrast. So he's contrasting what he just said. He stated by, in verse 19, by your endurance you will gain your lives, literally your souls, your spiritual life is not at stake, but now he's going to describe a danger to their physical lives and how they can preserve their physical lives. The context that Jesus explains is at the time of the visible sign. We can't remember, Jesus had predicted the temple would be torn down stone by stone. The disciples did not question that prediction, but they did ask when this would occur, specifically asking what will be the sign when these things are about to take place in verse 7. So the disciples asked when and what. They wanted to know what's the timing and what's the sign. And Jesus responds here in verse 20. And he says, Jesus is, or he said, Jerusalem is going to be surrounded. It means to encircle. And, and Jesus tells them to recognize that her desolation is near. Recognize, it means to know by experience. And, and it's, in, it's a command, it's in the, the sense of importance and urgency. It's a command to urgently, he says, don't miss this sign. The implication is your life depends on your recognizing this sign. And he's talking about Jerusalem. 
Now, he has, he has referenced some of this in verses, in situations earlier. So he did in, he did in Luke 19. So that's like only a month or so ago. We read Jesus saying the following. And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes, for the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. There's that phrase. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So Jesus had been talking about this. In fact, if you go back to verse 13, I mean chapter 13, he did, he did something similar there. He said, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. <clears throat> and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Matthew 23 also talks about Jesus talking about your house being left to you desolate. So this word desolation is used, and it has it has the meaning of total destruction or whatever happens causes it to be uninhabited or made a wilderness. That's what's going to happen to Jerusalem. <clears throat> now, I'm just going to spend a minute because there's, there's been a variety of ways that people have approached the passage that I need to make a contrast on. And it has to do with a contrast between Matthew and Luke and how they are talking about this Olivet Discourse. Luke does something that Matthew and Mark do not do with the Olivet Discourse. Luke inserts in the sequence of explanation the destruction of Jerusalem. Matthew and Mark do not do that. Matthew and Mark go right to the end. <coughs> and so I want to make sure that we understand there is this distinction. A lot of people want to make the Matthew passage and the Luke passage exactly the same. And so they'll take this chunk on the Matthew side of the equation, and it's Matthew 24, 15 through 22. They're going to take that passage and they're going to say that happened in AD 70. And that's not I don't think that's correct. There is a difference. Let's look at that Matthew passage, 24, verses 15 through 22. Listen. 
Matthew, he's, he's with Luke almost side by side with some of the things that are, being, that are being talked about. And Matthew and Mark are very much the same. But when Matthew comes to verse 15, he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get things out of that are in his house. Whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those day, days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. A lot of, I can't say a lot, a certain amount of commentators and teaching has tried to take that piece of the Matthew discourse and equal it to the, what we're looking at in Luke, which I'm calling the, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And they're equating the two, and I'm suggesting to you they shouldn't do that. They shouldn't do that because there are significant differences. And so I'm going to show you some of those differences. <clears throat> and on your handout, on the back of the handout is a table. This is half the table. I need two pages to show the whole table. <clears throat> but if we step down through that table, we're going to see what the differences are. So, for example, the first, the first row there. The Luke on the left side, Matthew on the right side. What are they to see? Luke 21.20 20 relates to the city of Jerusalem. Matthew 24.15 relates to the holy place. Luke references, addresses you. <coughs> Matthew addresses you and the reader. The sign, this is key, Luke says it's Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Matthew says the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. Not the same thing. Surrounded versus standing. There is no mention of the abomination of desolation. That's a very specific term taken from Daniel and the Old Testament. Luke mentions armies. No mention of that in Matthew. Luke refers to the desolation of the holy city, Jerusalem. Matthew refers to the desolation of the holy place. No mention of prophecy in Daniel. In Luke, there is a related prophecy in Daniel. Luke 21, 21, the emphasis is on the city. No mention of a city 
on the Matthew part of the passage. Luke, days of vengeance. Matthew, there is no parallel. Matthew talks about pray your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. There's no parallel in Luke. Another key distinction is Can you turn that for me? There, okay. Another key distinction is distress versus tribulation. <clears throat> Two different Greek words are used. In 21, 23 for Luke implies the distress is local, Jerusalem. In Matthew 24, there's a global implication world level. Distress in Luke is, is not unique or unprecedented. The tribulation in Matthew is described as unique and unprecedented. Here's another key, 21, 24. Luke says, led captive into all the nations. No parallel to Matthew. Luke says Jerusalem trampled underfoot. There is no parallel in Matthew. Matthew says the days shall be cut short. There is no parallel in Luke. I would, I would suggest to you these are two different situations. Two different things that are being talked about. One of them is going to happen, in fact, did happen in A.D. 70. The other one is yet to happen, and it's during the tribulation at the end. One of them happened and is a picture of what's going to happen at the end. You with me? That's what's going on in the two passages. Now, they're both covering the total content of the Mount of Olives discussion. Luke talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and the end. Matthew and Mark pretty much just talk about the tribulation and the end. <clears throat> so there's a, a sense of a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. This is another quote from one of the commentaries that, that reinforces that. Luke sees in Jerusalem the collapse a preview, but it doesn't have the same intensity as the way Mark is describing things. So whatever is going to happen, and it will happen to Jerusalem also at the end, but the intensity is going to be far greater. The fall of Jerusalem is not the end. The end is when Jesus comes. And it's as if Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem, is a guarantee that the next part of the passage, yet to happen, will happen. We can bank on it. All right? 
Are you with me? So, in some ways, you know, I really, I struggled. When I first started prepping this, I struggled as I was reading through the passages trying to figure out what is going on because things just are not lining up like I would like to. <clears throat> but as I began to draw out and picture a little bit what's happening, I can see the whole picture if I use both of the passages. I only see some of the picture if I use one or the other of the passages. One of the, one of the things that also surprised me was with the Luke passage, there was a set of verses that talked about the need to get out of the city. When you see this, flee. When you see, flee. Now there's a similar set of admonitions in the Matthew passage. <laughs> there is going to be a problem that happens in Jerusalem at the end. And the same thing is, there, get, get out of town. But what's interesting with the Luke passage, especially because we have the ability to have a historical record of what took place in A.D. 70, if you think about it, when Jesus says that Jerusalem's going to be surrounded by armies, and when that happens, you're supposed to get out. Now, in AD 70, Vespasian and Titus surrounded Jerusalem, but they surrounded it so tight, specifically to ensure that nobody could get out. So why would Jesus tell them, get out, when it's too late, when you see that you're surrounded, <clears throat> they've already put up the barricades and it's too late. Doesn't make sense. But here's what happened in reality. And it's historical. It's documented in a number of places. I'm going to read from Arnold Fruchtenbaum, a write-up he has, but it is also talked about in other historical write-ups. Listen to how he explains this. In answer to their first question, the Messiah gave them that would mark the fact that Jerusalem was about to be destroyed. <clears throat> the, sign, the sign was the surrounding of the city of Jerusalem by armies. These Jewish believers were told when they saw this, they were to leave Jerusalem and flee, get outside, get outside the land. The sign would mark the coming desolation of Jerusalem. And from that point on, Jerusalem will be continually trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. That prophecy was fulfilled in a very marvelous way. In the year, and I never knew this, so this, this really captured my attention. In the year AD 66, the first Jewish revolt broke out against the Romans. And when that happened, the Roman general, Cestius Gallus, came with his armies from Caesarea and surrounded Jerusalem. The surrounding of the city marked 
the sign that Jesus had promised. The Jewish believers knew that Jerusalem would soon be destroyed. However, that was impossible while the army was surrounding the city. But then Cestius Gallus noticed his supply lines were not secure. So now remember, this is 66 AD. He did not have enough supplies to maintain an extended siege. So he lifted the siege of Jerusalem in order to go back to Caesarea. <clears throat> On the way, he was attacked by Jewish forces and killed in AD 67. Temporarily, the city was no longer surrounded by armies. So every Jewish believer who paid attention was able to leave Jerusalem. They crossed the Jordan River, set up a new community of Jewish believers in the town of Pella and the Transjordan. And then in the year 68 AD, the Roman general named Vespasian and his son Titus, they came back, besieged the city, and in the year AD 70, the city and the temple were destroyed. So there was a way out. And when Jesus told them, watch for the sign and then get out, what appeared to be impossible actually was possible. <clears throat> Verse 24, and then they will fall by the edge of the sword and led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. They did fall by the sword. Vespasian and his armies killed hundreds of thousands of them. There was a Roman historian, Tacitus, who says, the normal population of Jerusalem, Jerusalem was 600,000 before AD 70. And this was about the time of Passover. So you would have had hundreds of thousands of others come to Jerusalem for the Passover time. But what happened was they killed that many, but there were as many as 97,000 prisoners that were taken, according to Josephus, and they were carried off everywhere. So just like it said, they were going to be led captive into the nations. That isn't something that happens at the tribulation. Antichrist doesn't take you captive, he kills you, okay? This is a different situation. This is AD 70. And literally what did happen, they were able to get out. Those who were left, many were killed, and many were taken prisoner and carried off and led captive into the other nations. There's other historical documents that say Rome also made an edict after this, no Jews were supposed to enter Jerusalem again. And so they were banned from coming back. In a sense, Jerusalem really was not just leveled, but made desolate, uninhabitable by the Jews. So that's the first near-term prophecy. Now let's look at 
the far-term prophecy. We're going to see cosmic signs, display, dismay of the nations, son of the man coming in a cloud. <clears throat> We're going to see this apocalyptic language start to happen because it's a different point in time. And it's much bigger and more intense than the destruction of Jerusalem. 21.25 says, there's going to be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth, dismay among the nations, perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Now, Matthew and Mark also begin to line up right with Luke on this end times language. They both say that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. <clears throat> but it says also in Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, this is going to happen. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Mark is very similar. But it's after the tribulation. And it's a one-time lifetime, once-in-a-lifetime tribulation. It will not be repeated, according to Mark. Because he says, For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. That's the end. We're up to the end. Still not at the end, <clears throat> but we're close to the end. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars. And people are going to be dismayed. They're going to be full of perplexity. It means like they're at their wit's end. They don't know what to do. A lot of stress. A lot of worry. There's significant worldwide creation level effects that are happening. 2126, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. <clears throat> For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. There is so much fear. There is so much unbelievable things happening. Men literally faint because of it. The fear is so great. Things that are happening are so horrible. And then, then we get to the culmination of the end. 2127. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power <clears throat> and great glory. All three of the writers have this same thing happen at the end. Jesus coming in a cloud with power and great glory. The first time we hear that kind of language was back in Daniel. <clears throat> but here all three writers are employing it. And it, it is something that has been used in Scripture before. Power and glory and clouds with God has been something that's been biblical through the centuries. Now we're going to see Jesus 
the Son of God, coming on the clouds of the sky. I mentioned something last week about prophecy and its importance, and it can be practical. With regards to the importance, I came across this quote, which really stunned me. I haven't had, I won't have enough cycles to research it, but it's by a credible resource, George Sweeting. Here's what he says. The day of the sun's return is clearly a truth that the spirit deems to be of the highest import and priority. Now, let's back off a second. Most of the time we have a tendency to go, it's prophecy. It's not that big of a deal. I don't want to spend my time on it. It's either too hard or it's not relevant. I, I just don't want to deal with it, okay? Just give me the other stuff on what I'm supposed to do as a believer. So that's a pretty remarkable claim. And he goes on, he says, why do I say that? Well, here's why he says that. One in every 30 New Testament verses refers to the second coming. Wow, never knew that. More than a fourth of the Bible is predictive prophecy. Approximately a third of it is yet to be fulfilled. Old and New Testaments are full of promises about the return of Christ. Over 1,800 references appear in the Old Testament. Of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are more than 300 references to the Lord's return. One out of every 30 verses. 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to this great event. For every prophecy on the first coming of Christ, there are eight on his second coming. Wow. Must be important. Probably more important than we realize. I think the biblical writers felt this particular doctrine, if you want to call it that, has an importance that is absolutely, unbelievably significant. And we have a tendency to just kind of go, yeah, it's going to happen. And I think the writers are trying to constantly bring it to our attention as something we should not just be aware of, but we should trying to be trying to live with. Verse 28. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is near. This is a command. Straighten up. Again, it's in that imperative sense of don't delay. It speaks of urgency. Now, in the case of the term redemption, it's the only time this word is used in the Gospels. Now, we could say, okay, 
This really applies especially or specifically to the Jews and Israel. I think it does apply to them, and it applies to Israel. But as believers, we've been redeemed in the past, and there is a future aspect of redemption. The word redemption isn't necessarily just at the time of salvation. Here's what Ephesians 4.30 says. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It applies to us also. However terrible the signs of Christ's second coming may be, they need not strike terror in the heart of the true believer. They should fill us with joy. Now, that really kind of seems strange. If I was, if I was experiencing all these cosmic signs and everything, it would be hard to have joy when I'm watching the world crash down physically around me. But he's, he is saying, lift up your heads. Your redemption is near. Because your redemption is near. <clears throat> so, we should be filled with joy because the deliverance from sin and the world and the devil, it's close at hand. And we can say goodbye to sickness and sorrow and death and temptation. That should bring joy at that point in time. Jesus' warning call for watchfulness applies to every generation of believers until he returns. The question is, how would you gauge your spiritual condition today? Are you in a spiritual condition where if this happened today, you would be able to express joy? Are you continually watchful, contemplating that today could be the day? Or have we been dulled into a living, a worldly existence which focuses on the here and now? at the expense of the eternal? Well, I can answer that for you, because I know that many times that's what I do. I am not looking at life correctly. I am too focused on the temporal, the here and now, and it is at the expense of the eternal. But I can tell you, ever since I started prepping this passage, Guess what I'm looking for every time I go outside? What do you think I do? I look up, and if I see clouds, I literally ask the question, are you going to come on those clouds today? Is that what's going to happen? And if I really, truly believe that it could happen today, that should have an impact on my life, shouldn't it? Your life too. But we get so caught up in things of the world, we don't even, we just don't do that. And I think the writers through all these books constantly want us to be doing that. 
I think the Lord wants us to do that. Here's a closing verse for us. It's 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. It says, See how great a love the Father has given us, that we would be called children of God? In fact, we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope set on him purifies himself just as he is pure. There's a call for sanctification, if I ever heard one. There's a call for sanctification. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Waiting, watching, getting sanctified, desiring the return of Jesus. Not saying, oh, not yet. I still have some things I want to do. That's not the right kind of answer. (laughs) It should be, come now, Lord Jesus. Come now, fix this horrible mess that the world is in and take us home. Amen.